Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. But let me just ask you, when, uh, whenever you're getting ready for something, don't you notice that you adopt a, a kind of posture? How about when you go up to bat? You know, think back to your softball days last summer. When you go up to bat, what do you do? Bat hang at the side? Just kind of schlup up there and just stand there? What do you do? What does a true softball expert do? You get into a, right? Anyone? You get into a stance, right? Because you want to be ready for what comes. You adopt a kind of posture. How about when you're setting up to wrestle with the kids on the floor? How many of you recognize now that you're older? You need to limber up. Have a 15-minute warm-up. Not that the kids give you that, but you need it because you know what might happen. You're going to slip a disc or something. Regret it for the rest of the year. How about if you're preparing to have family over for the holidays? You adopt a kind of posture. Go grocery shopping, make some beds. You book some counseling (laughs) to prepare you. How we get ready for what's coming actually has a big impact on our experience of what comes, doesn't it? It does. That's why we can be so thrown off when we're hit by things we don't expect. Well, the season of Advent, of course, is all about helping us get ready to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And I know in the first season of Advent, for some of us, it's like you walked in this morning and went, oh, right, Christmas is coming, which is exactly how Advent is supposed to function. During the four weeks of Advent, it's like we slowly wake up to this reality that the Messiah is coming, has come, and we want to celebrate his arrival, a celebration of his arrival on Christmas Day, and we don't want to be caught off guard. We want to be really ready for the Jesus birthday party, heart, mind, soul, strength, and so that's what Advent's for. Over the next four weeks, during our Sundays of Advent, we're going to explore the posture of various saints found in the Advent narrative. Right back at the first Advent They show up in the early chapters of Luke and Matthew. And we're going to observe their holy posture and be invited to reposition ourselves likewise, to follow their example so that we can be ready like them. And I'm really happy that both Cheryl Hambry and Valerie Comer are going to be joining in on this teaching series as well. So are you ready? Or are you ready to get ready like Zechariah and Elizabeth? Well, I want you to open up your heart to this glorious story that's told to us through most of Luke chapter 1, and this morning is going to be read to us by Cheryl, Jan, Jody, and Tennille. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses of the ser- and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord our God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him.
His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hands of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Thank you for reading that for us. What a great story, hey? Talk about a story where hope finally is met at the very end. Right? Against all odds, on this first Sunday of Advent, we traditionally focus on the theme of hope. The hope candle was lit. And we notice immediately how this opening story of Advent in Luke features a couple who had lost all hope of ever having a child of their own. And it's very interesting here that Luke finds their story so hugely significant. He gives actually more detail, more ink, more time about the advent of John the Baptist, who actually came to get everyone else ready for the coming, of course, of the Messiah, Jesus. He spends more time on his advent than he does on the advent of Jesus himself. Did you realize that? Read it. Read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and just compare. And we find in this first story guidance for our Advent posture, how we can be more ready for Christmas. But before we get to that posture specifically, um, there's just a couple truths I want you to hear from this story. The first thing is this. Being faithful doesn't guarantee fruit. But we can still be faithful anyway. Did you notice that in this story? Zechariah and Elizabeth are wonderful examples of faithfulness in the face of fruitlessness. I mean, we hear it in verses 6 and 7. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. I want you to hear me really clearly. Infertility is despairing. Tina and I felt that firsthand. We struggled to get pregnant for a number of years in our marriage, multiple interventions. We despaired of having children. And that ache is a real ache. And our hearts continue to go out to any men and women who experience that same struggle. And some of you know firsthand the sharpness of that ache far more than we do because As most of you know, we were eventually graced with two healthy sons, and our firstborn turned 22 last week, so 
we were reminded again of the time when we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for him. But infertility or barrenness, it's sometimes depicted in the scriptures, has quite a precedence in biblical history, doesn't it, in the story. Most famously, of course, Abram and Sarai grew old without kids. The father and mother of our faith, both Jewish and Christian, wondered for decades when God was going to make good on his promise of a family coming. And then God stepped in a number of times, oh no, not to give him kids yet, but just to remind them that he was going to be faithful to his promise. And they got older and older and older, and God waited until the very last moment it would seem to make good on that promise. And all the while, Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, they got renamed along the way. They had to trust, they had to grow, they had to continue to serve, to remain faithful, even sometimes when they weren't and they were frail. God would pick them back up, reaffirm his promise to them. And as the story goes, of course, it's Abraham's faith, not fruit, that was counted to him as righteousness. Other heroes in the Bible come to mind. Uh, We think of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who was crying out, crying out, crying out for a child. We think of Ruth, the grandmother of King David, who was never able to have kids with her husband, who then died, and now she had consigned herself. In order to be faithful, she had consigned herself to a life of childlessness in order to be faithful to her own mother-in-law. We also think of the woman Tamar, who had to overcome her infertility in a way that is not recommended at all. You can pick that up in the book of Genesis sometimes, but don't read it to your kids. And yet she enters into our Advent story now as one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus himself. And the faithfulness of all these people really stands out that even in the face of fruitlessness, they wouldn't quit being faithful. There's a hearty kind of faithfulness that looks reality in the eye and says, you're right, life is not what I had hoped it would be, but God is good and I'm going to remain faithful anyway. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were people just like that. People who'd been robbed of their heart's desire all their long lives and yet remained faithful, righteous in God's sight, blamelessly obedient to God's will and his word. And we could actually just stop right there. That could be enough for us. And some of you are thinking, yes, please, Tom, stop right there. That would be enough for us to prep for Advent. Just look in at Zechariah and Elizabeth and ask, where am I willing to continue to be faithful even where it feels like life is barren? Where am I going to continue to choose hope in God even when life seems despairing? Or where are the places in our lives where we need to remain faithful even when it doesn't look fruitful at all? The second truth I want you to see emerges from the birth announcement itself. And that is this, God can answer our prayers long after we stop praying them. Did you see that? Zechariah and Elizabeth had settled into their old age. They still carried with them the ache of of childlessness, hope dashed, not going to be. It was now sort of an accepted fact for them. They're not going to have kids. But now God steps in to answer their prayers long after they'd given up praying them. You can see it right in the story. The angel shocks Zechariah right in the middle of his sacred priestly work. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And then the angel proceeds to give Zechariah all the marvelous details about his coming son, including giving him the most unconventional name of all time. Have you ever heard it before? John? (laughs) Well, we picked that one up, didn't we? Anyway, uh, but does Zechariah shout, finally? My prayers have been answered. 
dance around with Gabe and say, good, this is what I've been expecting. No, he does not. And I think it's because they stopped praying this prayer long before. What was the point? Lizzie's way post-menopause, and he, well, yeah. They're faithful to God, but they've given up. The, the whole idea of having a baby was gone, man. And so he's understandably skeptical. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is no spring chicken either. And then, whoosh, it's the last word we hear Zechariah speak for the next nine months. We'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, just catch this. God has heard our prayers. He's caught up all of our heart's cries, and he does not forget them. And while the answer he gives may not be exactly what we've been hoping for, and it certainly won't be on the time scale that we've been hoping for, what we discover about the faithfulness of God here holds true. God can answer our prayers in surprising ways long after we had given up asking for his help. And so let me ask you, what prayers have you long given up praying for? And how might God still be at work? This Advent, uh, could it be that God is prompting you to remember or even consider how he might still be in the business of answering a long-forgotten prayer? I want you to see those two truths because they might encourage you. As I was looking at the story, I was encouraged by those two truths. There might be a specific way that in your life they connect with you. And I hope that's an encouragement to you, that sermon, part one. But let's move on to examine how these two beautiful people help us prepare for Advent. When Zechariah and Elizabeth did receive this unlikely news of a coming child, what did their preparation for Advent look like? And how might that inform our posture? Well, this might surprise you. But I'd like to suggest that their Advent preparation featured two of the most central Christian spiritual practices, practices that have fallen out of popularity both in broader culture and in the church, but are actually front and center in this story. And they've been front and center down through the centuries for Christians. Did you see them there? I'm actually talking about the twin spiritual practices of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude are practices that were central to the spiritual life of Jesus Christ himself. And they have been considered absolutely essential for our spiritual flourishing as well. Men and women down through the Christian centuries have practiced solitude and silence, and they have told us repeatedly that we should do the same. And these are not practices that are just for mystics and monks and all the people who have all the time on their hands in the world. No, this is actually essential for the spiritual growth and life of moms and dads, of teachers and farmers, doctors and entrepreneurs. They're practices for any and every faithful follower of Jesus. That being deliberate about getting quiet and getting alone has been something, it turns out, that we cannot do without. Or at least, we can't do without and actually grow up in Christ. 
And in this Advent story that Luke tells us, silence and solitude become the very way that that Zechariah and Elizabeth get ready to receive baby John into their home. My question is, could that be instructive for us? Now, these two practices are always paired together. Makes sense. But let's look at them separately. Let's first look at silence. Now, in Zechariah's case, silence was not chosen, correct? It was imposed. You can almost feel the angel stand up a little taller when Zechariah questions him. He's like, wings come out. I don't know. You can imagine. I am Gabriel. I stand. It's like, who are you? I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. It's kind of like, who do you think you are, buddy? And now, I wonder, does God give the angel a little free will at that moment? Did Gabe get to choose? I don't know. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. That's exactly what happened, right? Zechariah's lips were zipped until the day John was named, and then it's like the verbal dam bursts. Zechariah has been storing it up, and now he cannot shut up. It reminds me of a guy back in my church in Grand Prairie who would go on these long, long road trips, delivering things, I kid you not. He would drive from Grand Prairie down to California, across through Texas, then to Florida, drop back up to New Hampshire, then swing around through Manitoba, dropping things off along the way. And then he'd show up in my office with a big double-double in his hand. And I kid you not, my hair was blown back by the verbal barrage that my friend gave to me because, man, he had a lot of pent-up thoughts after all that time alone. I feel like this is what's going on here. Out of this long Advent silence, Zechariah just bursts out. But in this case, with prophetic praise, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. And then it goes on, of course, you heard it. My friends, Sometimes the only way God can deepen our faith is when we get quiet long enough to receive what he has to say. In silence, faith has room to grow. And unless we are silent deliberately, intentionally, we will likely miss much of what the Spirit is doing in us and in our world. Yes, for Zechariah, it was a forced silence. But men and women of God for centuries have chosen to practice moments or hours or even seasons of silence, and they have experienced the same benefits. From silence, where we're listening to God, where we're open to his heart and his mind, understanding and insight and wisdom can be born in us, which then comes out as praise, praise of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that has been nurtured in the silence. Could it be that the shallowness of our praise is linked to the loudness of our lives? Could it be that the lack of spiritual vitality we often experience is connected to our lack of personal silence? For our faith to grow, we need a posture of silence. And as we enter into this Advent season, when, let's be honest, it gets pretty loud, The loudness of party and festival, of activity, of busyness just goes way, way, way up. This call, this Zechariah story to us is, might we create moments 
of silence throughout Advent so we can actually hear what is happening, so we can be open to the Spirit's work in us. How will you create a posture of silence somewhere in Advent? We'll swing back to that practical response for the moment, but for now, let's move on to the twin of silence, which is solitude. When Elizabeth first got pregnant, she hid herself away in seclusion for five months. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, it's not an uncommon reaction for someone who has experienced something so shocking, so tender, they kind of like don't even want to... I mean, in the early moments of pregnancy, especially in that culture, like, how would you know, right? But somehow she knew, but your neighbors would have called you what? If you'd have said, she'd have walked out of her house and said, I'm pregnant! Day after uh, Zechariah got home, what would the neighbors have said? Oh, that poor woman, right? She hides herself away. There's something so tender going on, something so unbelievably and incredibly good. It's as though Liz just needs to sit with this gift of grace and hold tight to it for a while. No one saw her. It's likely that few, if any, knew what was really going on inside that house. And boy, is he quiet these days. (laughs) Hidden within her, a new life was growing. And somewhere in this wonderful solitude, something beautiful was happening. Well, in the sixth month of her pregnancy, um, when Elizabeth was probably starting to show outward signs of pregnancy, she lets one other person into her solitude, into her seclusion, though not at her invitation. An angel ratted on Elizabeth, telling Mary, by the way, (laughs) first to tell you, Elizabeth's pregnant. I think if the angel hadn't done that, Elizabeth might have stayed alone through her whole pregnancy. But the door opens and Mary enters, a much younger cousin, just pregnant herself. And she spends the first trimester of her pregnancy with Elizabeth while Elizabeth is in her last trimester. What a time that must have been. But then Mary leaves. And if you're wondering where this was in the story, I cut it out of the reading. I'm sorry. It's in that middle section. We blew right over it when it was being read, but it's there. When Mary uh, leaves, Uh, She leaves just before her old cousin Elizabeth is going to have her baby. We don't know why she didn't wait till the baby come, but perhaps it had something to do with an upcoming trip. Yeah. Bethlehem, a certain census being taken. I'm so sorry, Liz. Yes, I have to go. Yeah, we're heading to Bethlehem. Can you believe it? I'm hoping he's born first, too. (laughs) No? Okay. I like to think it. Unlike Zechariah's forced silence, the solitude of Elizabeth is chosen. Elizabeth deliberately hides away in order to simply nurture this new life that was growing within her. She must have woke up every day laughing with delight. Just her and her extremely quiet husband smiling at each other in complete shock of God's work. And in that solitude, God's grace was just soaking in. Elizabeth was being made ready, heart, mind, and soul, to receive this little one into her arms, even at her late age, to pour the last of her life into him. Tradition tells us, and logic would tell us, that they didn't live to see 
John the Baptist, maybe not even through his teenage years. When the baby is born, though, her solitude comes to an end. The whole community surrounds Elizabeth and Zechariah to celebrate this portentous birth. I mean, what is going on? And Zechariah's long silence and Elizabeth's chosen solitude, now nine months long, they emerge together in praise and into community, and everyone's the better for it. Advent, uh, Elizabeth's Advent posture of solitude leads us to consider our own practice. What might solitude look like for us? Remember, solitude is simply this. It's the practice of deliberate withdrawal. Withdrawal from others. Withdrawal from the crowds. Withdrawal from friends. Withdrawal from family. Withdrawal from always being with. Always being for. Always being around. Always being busy. And it's choosing to go away. To be alone. To spend time with the Lord. It's a pattern in the life of Jesus, who is a busy guy, to get up early to go away, even for a few moments. You see this in the Gospels, Jesus stealing away in the wee hours of the morning to spend time alone and in silence. And our spiritual mothers and fathers, as I've already said, consistently reminded us that it's only when we practice solitude that we'll find the one who is always there. Our spiritual lives demand solitude and its twin, silence, in order to be nurtured. Nurtured in Christ, but nurtured for others. Henry Nouwen, one of our great contemporary spiritual writers who is now dead, uh, shows us um, in a beautiful little article that has really helped me over the years, how Jesus patterned his life around a rhythm of solitude, community, and ministry. And he argued persuasively that Jesus could not have served the community or completed his mission without this practice of solitude. And if it's true of him, how much more true is it of us? In solitude, we're gently reminded of who we truly are, of who we truly need. In solitude, our ways of constantly trying to please others, our addiction to busyness or substances or some kind of image of who we are or our work or our roles, all of those can be gently exposed by the Spirit. In solitude, the Lord Jesus will lead us to the Father, and we are slowly, slowly, slowly being remade into the image of Jesus Christ himself. In solitude, in silence, the noise, the tapes we're always hearing, the stories we tell ourselves, the lies that we believe, the constant barrage of demands, both internal and external, they're confronted by the easy yoke of Jesus, and he carries our burden for us. In solitude, the Holy Spirit reveals ways that we've mistreated or manipulated others. He brings to our mind and heart people we've failed to forgive, ones that we've forgotten to love. And we're able to repent and be renewed in the call of Jesus to follow him into ministry. In solitude, the Spirit prepares us to serve one another in love as we return to community. Because what we must never forget is this. Solitude and silence, these twins of spiritual formation, they're never for themselves. They're just a means to an end. Now, whenever we talk about the disciplines of solitude and silence, introverts all among us breathe tremendous sighs of relief, right? Because someone is finally giving them permission to shut the door and be alone. Right? Right? Be quiet. 
Finally, something we've been longing for. Meanwhile, all the extroverts in the room start squirming at the very idea of five minutes of silence and being alone. Particularly if you tell them, yes, you can't take your phone with you. But here's the thing to remember. Nurturing the posture of silence and solitude is actually a challenge for both extroverts and introverts, though perhaps in different ways. The challenge for extroverts might seem a little more clear, may not seem as natural to you at first blush, though as I get older, as an extrovert, um, I long more and more for silence and solitude. But learning to take time away, learning to carve out moments in your life for silence and solitude, that takes time to develop. But if you'll commit to that practice little by little, it'll actually become an oasis of life for you. That through solitude and silence, the Spirit is going to help you sift through all that noise which is often in our own heads, and lead you to a calmer center in Christ. The challenge of extroverts is to get in to solitude and silence. Of course, the challenge of extroverts is to get out of it. Because being alone and being silent is more natural for you. You can think, got this, thank you. But in actual fact, the challenge might be twofold. It might be realizing that solitude and silence is the practice of spiritual formation. isn't just you time. It's not just that I need to be away from people before I kill someone. It's actually us time. The need to be away with the Lord. To practice solitude and silence. Being in meditation, in prayer, with an awareness of Christ's presence. To be nurturing that. But then also to realize that this is designed to enable us to go back out into praise, into ministry. As I already said, solitude and silence is not an end in and of itself. The goal is not to just be quiet and alone with Jesus. The goal of silence and solitude is actually revealed to us right here in this Advent story. The goal of silence is public praise. The goal of solitude is community celebration. Did you see that? Did you see it in their story? By choosing a posture of silence, like Zechariah, we're going to be made ready to truly praise the Father, Son, and Spirit, even this Christmas. In that spirit of silence, we're able to be uh, filled up with an awareness of what he has done, what he is doing even now, what he has promised to do. The significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ can build within us in those times of silence so that like a praise dam that bursts, there's an overflow of gratitude, of song, of heart that we bring to the Christmas celebration that brings life and grace to others because we can't hold back. By choosing a posture of solitude, I think we'll be ready to really party when it comes time to do so, where we can actually get together with others, and maybe even with some people that aren't as easy to get together with, but somehow because we've been alone with Jesus, we've been nurtured in solitude, we're able to come back together and really celebrate the coming of Jesus. We're able to gather like friends long parted and be in awe together of what God has done at Christmas. Well, practically speaking, how can you and I get ready like Zechariah and Elizabeth this Christmas? And I'd love to throw it open. Do I still have time? I'd like to throw it open if there's any questions about this, but let me give you a little bit of practical stuff. Then we'll throw it open if there's a question or two before we head to the close.
So practically speaking, how can we incorporate this into our lives? I don't want this just to sit out there. I don't want you to think, well, solitude, silence, well, that's nice. How are you actually going to do this? First one is to deliberately carve out moments for solitude and silence in your advent calendar, to actually make this a priority. You're booking up your Christmas parties, are you? Got your tickets for the banquet? You're booking up all these various activities that are going on, maybe for your kids, maybe at school, maybe at work. And I'm challenging you to somehow in the midst of Advent, also book some time for solitude and for silence. Now, this is very easy for some of you because you already spend lots of time alone. And you're thinking, well, check, done. This is also very challenging for others. Your life is such that finding even 30 seconds of solitude and silence would be shocking to you. Maybe you have young kids. Maybe you have a demanding life situation. Here's my challenge to you. First of all, let go of any sort of weird expectation that you're going to spend hours of solitude and silence. Let it go and look for moments. Look for moments where you can pause and simply say, Lord, I'm listening. Lord, I'm here. And then move on. Try it. But secondly, you can help each other, you know. I actually want to put out a challenge to some of you who think, I do get time alone. To look around. Look around your life. Look around this building. Look around at members of our church and think, who among us might struggle to have solitude and silence? Ask that. Ask it over coffee today. As you're drinking coffee, as you're thinking about it online, think, who in my life, who in our church might struggle with solitude and silence? How could I help them with that? Maybe there's a, I do think of you, you parents of young kids, and I think, what would it look like for, for someone else to say, hey, I'd be willing to come over and just like play with your kids in your living room while you spend some time alone, maybe in the same house. Or I'd be willing to take your kids sledding for an hour, you know, that, that kind of thing. Think through how you could partner with each other to enable an experience of solitude and silence this Advent. I also want to uh, remind you, this may surprise you, but the spiritual fathers and mothers that I've been in touch with over the years, they often say the posture, the attitude of silence and solitude can actually occur when there are people around. When there are even noise, there is even noise around. And so don't limit yourself to experiencing solitude and silence, being alone with Jesus, even in the presence of others, maybe uh, when you're driving or maybe when you're, when you're sitting somewhere. Uh, look for those opportunities to carve out moments where you're just listening and you're attentive. And then during those times, to look and listen for the Spirit. Ask God to meet you and reveal for you what he wants for you this Christmas, what he wants for you this Advent. Practically speaking, I encourage you to emerge from your time of silence and solitude and write something down. Jot it down in a note. Get a journal. But take a note. What is God saying to you? What were you wrestling with? What kept coming to your mind and heart? What prayers have you forgotten? Where have you been struggling to be faithful because you aren't seeing fruit? Write something down. Jot 
a, a thought, a moment, an encouragement, a reminder, a, something, a sin you need to confess, what, write it down. Capture that. And then, uh, as long as it's appropriate, share that with a spiritual friend, a spouse, a partner, someone. We can take the posture of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it can lead us into Advent. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.